Freedom's Plow by Langston Hughes. When a man starts out with nothing, when a man starts out with his hands empty but clean, when a man starts to build a world, he starts first with himself and the faith that is in his heart, the strength there, the will there to build. First in the heart is the dream. Then the mind starts seeking a way. His eyes look out to the world, on the great wooded world, on the rich soil of the world, on the rivers of the world. A long time ago, but not too long ago, ships came from across the sea, bringing the pilgrims and prayer makers, adventurers and booty seekers, free men and indentured service, slave men and slave masters, all new to a new world. America. With billowing sails, the galleons came, bringing men and dreams, women and dreams, in little bands together, heart reaching out to heart, hand reaching out to hand. Some were free hands, seeking a greater freedom. Some were indentured hands, hoping to find their freedom. Some were slave hands, guarding in their hearts the seed of freedom. But the word was there always, freedom. Down into the earth went the plow in the free hands and slave hands and indentured hands and adventurous hands. Turning the rich soil went the plow in many hands that planted and harvested the food that fed and the cotton that clothed America. Clang against the trees went the axe into many hands that hewed and shaped the rooftops of America. Splash into the river, the boats and the seas that moved and transported America. Crack went the whips that drove the horses across the plains of America. Free hands and slave hands, indentured hands, adventurous hands, white hands and black hands, held the plow handles, axe handles, hammer handles, launched the boats and whipped the horses that fed and housed and moved America. Thus, Together through labor, all these hands made America. A long time ago, but not too long ago, a man said, All men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. His name was Jefferson. There were slaves then. But in their hearts, the slaves believed him too and silently took for granted that what he said was also meant for them. It was a long time ago, but not so long ago, that Lincoln said, No man is good enough to govern another man without the other's consent. There were slaves then, too. But in their hearts, the slaves knew what he said must be meant for every human being, else it had no meaning for anyone. Then a man said, better to die free than to live slaves. He was a colored man who had been a slave, but had run away to freedom. And the slaves knew what Frederick Douglass said was true. America is a dream. The poet says it was promises. The people say it is promises that will come true. 
The people do not always say things out loud nor write them down on paper. The people often hold great thoughts in their deepest hearts and sometimes only blunderingly express them, haltingly and stumblingly say them, and faultily put them into practice. The people do not always understand each other, but there is somewhere there always the trying to understand and the trying to say, you are a man. Together we are building our land. A long time ago, an enslaved people heading toward freedom made up a song. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. The plow plowed a new furrow across the field of history. Into that furrow the freedom seed was dropped. From that seed a tree grew, is growing, will ever grow. That tree is for everybody, for all America, for all the world. May its branches spread and shelter grow until all races and all peoples know its shade. Keep your hand on the plow. Hold on. I'm going to start this morning by telling you a story, a story about one of the founders of this church. Not the founders of the Unitarian Church of Loudoun, no, about one of the founders of the church that met here for the first time in 1890, the Mount Olive Methodist Episcopal Church. There were five men who signed the deed purchasing the land to build this church. I'm going to tell you about one of them. My story begins on a hot, dry September day in 1863, when 5'3 inch, 19-year-old Martin Van Buren Buchanan left the slave quarters on the Oatlands Plantation just down the road to the south of us and headed for Alexandria to join the Union Army. He couldn't read and he couldn't write. And he probably owned nothing but the clothes he was wearing and if he was lucky he had a pair of shoes on his feet. He walked down the hill past the big yellow house where the Carters lived. He probably said goodbye to his sisters, Ginny and Betty, his father, Robert, and his mother, Mahalia, and walked down the cobblestone driveway that his grandparents had built, turning north on Carter's Mill Road. He went past the Widow Daniel's farm, the farm with the yellow barn and yellow house you could see at the corner of this road and Gap Road. Confederate Sergeant Daniel had just died from wounds he suffered at Manassas. Then he passed John Elgin's farm up the hill behind us. John Elgin was away in the Confederate Army and his wife's brothers away in the Union Army. And he continued on down the road to a new future. It must have taken extraordinary courage to leave his home and his family and venture out into a world unknown and unfriendly to him. Why did Martin, and a couple of months later, his future brother-in-law, James Gaskins, take this bold step? Frederick Douglass explained it by saying, once let the black man get upon his person the brass letters U.S. Let him get an eagle on his button and a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket. 
then there is no power on earth that can deny that he has earned the right to citizenship. Henry Bibb, a slave in Kentucky who ran away and was recaptured many, many times before successfully escaping to Canada, wrote in his autobiography that all his life, from a young child, he had a longing, a desire, a fire for liberty within his breast, which was never quenched. Martin and the other 250 enslaved and free black men from Loudoun County who enlisted understood that even though the Emancipation Proclamation formally declared them free, that freedom wasn't real. It certainly wasn't guaranteed to be permanent while others keep fighting to keep them enslaved. They too had a fire for liberty. They too were determined to fight for their own freedom. So Martin left here, enlisted in the 2nd Infantry U.S. Colored Troops, was sent to Florida, fought in skirmishes there, and didn't return to Virginia for three years. His life forever changed. Of the 132 enslaved persons at the Carter Plantations in Leesburg and Upperville prior to the war, many were gone when Martin got back. Elizabeth Carter recorded in her diary that Wallace walked off saying he was free and was going out for wages. And a couple of days later, she wrote, Harry Lee and Sam Jones took themselves off as free men. People who one day had no ability to make decisions affecting their own lives suddenly had complete responsibility for them. Where to go, what to do, who to live with, who to work for, how to care for yourself and your children. But there were well over half still there to welcome Martin home. There were three generations of the Day family and three of the Buchanans and the Gleeds and the Washingtons. For years, these people had tilled the fields here, cared for the gardens and animals, constructed roads and buildings, and they had raised their families here. Their roots were deep. This was their home as much as it was the Carters' home. And just as Martin's first choice was his family, the first priority of the newly freed people throughout the South was family. There has been much said about the black family under slavery and how the slave system is what destroyed the black family. But recent research and thought argues that blacks placed the highest priority on their families both during and after slavery. Although it was often difficult, slaves did develop and sustain family relationships. Slaves believed that the worst form of punishment was an owner's interference with their family. They would rather endure the reduction of food or clothing the increase of their workload, or even the administration of violence than separation from their loved ones. I came across a book recently called Sugar of the Crop, just by accident. And almost 20 years ago, a young journalist set out on a search to find all the children of slaves that were still living. And she found about 40 of them in the country. She wanted to understand this moment in history 
this exact moment when they were first freed. She wanted to see it through the eyes of those going through it. She relates a story told by 95-year-old Herman Hood of Gastonia, North Carolina. Herman's father had seven brothers and one sister, and they were all sold away from his parents. As soon as the war ended, the father walked from plantation to plantation in North Carolina and South Carolina looking for his children. He would do anything in order to get them. And to get Herman's father away from a master who told his former slaves he would hunt them down and kill them if they ever left, he would never concede the end of slavery. So Herman's father was sewed inside a mattress. The mattress was put inside a wagon and they drove off. Eventually, all the children were found except the youngest, the little sister who had been saved as a one-pound premature infant. It remained very painful for this man for the rest of his life that he didn't find her. He often lamented that she was the sugar of his crop, the sweetest one. One Union officer wrote his wife in 1865, I wish you could see these people as they step from slavery into freedom. Families which had been for a long time broken are united and oh, such happiness. I am glad I am here. It took only five years, five short years, before the striving, persevering group of people here were renting land and building homes around the edges of Oatlands. From the original driveway south of here to where the cemetery is, you see the sign north of here, down Mountain Gap Road and up the hill behind us, they built homes. And in those five years, they even managed to accumulate some property. At a time when a horse cost $75 and a cow $35 and an acre of land $50, Jack Gleed was worth $250. So I wonder what he had. Maybe a mule and a cow and a plow, but definitely a plow. Philip Stewart, his uncle-in-law, was worth $400. Ten years later, the first one to purchase their own piece of land was Jack Gleed, buying about five acres, a little diagonally across the street from here. By the late 1880s, the official county documents referred to the settlement at the corner of Mountain Gap Road and Old Carolina Road as the town of Gleedsville, and this road now as Gleedsville Road. At the same time they worked to prosper economically, the newly freed citizens in this county exercised their right to vote. Large numbers of African-American men in Loudoun County registered as soon as they could and voted in large numbers to the end of the century. They fought for their rights as citizens. Men from all over the county formed the Colored Men's Society of Loudoun County, openly protested, sued for their rights whenever the county tried to deny them. Jack Leed and other Gleedsville residents pressured the county for school when their children were denied the right to attend the only other school in the area. As I did research for the Registry of Historic Places submission we did a few years ago, and then again for the Civil War trail marker that we've just put up, 
I found myself wondering many times, how did these people find the resources, both physical and emotional, to build their new lives out of nothing with the obstacles they faced? How did they feel? What did they think? What scars did the experience of slavery leave on them? What attitudes did they approach their new lives with? Gleadsville townspeople had been slaves of the same people they now live next door to, were now employed by, now rented land from. Sonia Butler, the author of the book I mentioned earlier, says, historians and academics have focused so much attention on the victimization of slaves, the horrors that took place under slavery, that they rarely documented the strength that enabled former slaves to overcome long-term disabling trauma in order to function normally. When Butler finished her interviews of the last members of the first free generation, she found much to her surprise that their parents did not allow anger and helplessness to rule their lives. Their children tell stories of how their parents never talked directly to them about slavery. They seemed to try to hide it from them. Many said whatever they learned was by eavesdropping. Their parents did not want their children to be hindered by it, to be held back by it. They looked to the future. They had big dreams and hopes for their children. They realized that wallowing in their bitterness would only hamper achieving those dreams. One woman explained that her parents didn't tell her about their experiences because they knew she'd have to work for white people and be around them and didn't want her growing up consumed with hate. A hundred-year-old Walter Scott of Prince Edward County, Virginia, told her that his mother wanted all her children to be big people. She told them over and over again, be a big person, you have to be somebody. You have to go to school. You have to be intelligent. You need to marry somebody intelligent. Good advice for us all. <laughs> Before talking to these children of slaves, Butler writes, I had my own ideas of how the children of slaves grew up. I expected them to be an angry and frustrated generation. After all, their parents had survived the single most barbaric period in U.S. history. I thought they might have trouble building strong bonds with their children or handing down anything other than the fear and hatred that remained from being somebody else's property. But this was not the case. She concluded, after talking to these people, all my preconceived ideas were changed. They were replaced with something more inspirational that has opened a door to an entirely new understanding of human behavior in the face of oppression, and the unyielding strength that comes from unconditional love. We focus so much on the horrors of slavery that we never really talk about the strength and courage and resiliency that allowed free slaves to love and be loved and to give it to their children. There was a fork in the road. Freed slaves had a choice. They could choose their experience and their painful traumatic background and what they went through as a slave, or they could choose love. 
They chose love. They chose the American dream. By 1890, the residents of the town of Gleedsville were well on their way. They were now landowners, and many had trades. Instead of being farm laborers, they were now farmers, blacksmiths, carpenters, seamstresses, a couple of school teachers, and even a midwife lived right here. Over half the children were going to school. Many owned their own farms and homes. Their dream was becoming reality. Why would anyone think it would not continue this way? And at that point, they built a church, a place to find hope, a place to dream dreams. The story we've been told, so lovingly expressed in Ryan Pettit's painting over there, is that they built it themselves, rock by rock, board by board, at night after laboring all day in the fields. They carried the stones from the land across the street and cut the boards from the large old pine trees on this lot for the siding, floor, and pews. They chose to be a Methodist Episcopal Church, and the mission statement banner that would have hung here then would have read, Preach the gospel, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, house the homeless, provide jobs for the jobless not too different from what we think our mission statement says today. We are the second faith community to own this building, to be the dreamers in this building, to find hope in this building, to preach the gospel of love and justice in this building. There is another part of the poem that Chris read earlier Uh, that I'm going to read to you in a couple of minutes, but when, he, when I read the entire poem, I had to weep for the past for what they went through. And I'm even weeping for the present that we are in. in. I am discouraged. When will we, America, realize our dream? And then I hear the last verse that Langston, wrote, Langston Hughes wrote. He wrote, if the house is not yet finished, don't be discouraged, builder. If the fight is not yet won, don't be weary, soldier. The plan and the pattern is here, woven from the beginning into the warp and woof of America. All men are created equal. Just like those who sat in these pews before us, we cannot give in to helplessness and anger. We cannot be discouraged. There is still work to do. As President Obama said in his beautiful, inspiring speech a few weeks ago, when it feels the roads too hard, when the torch we've been passed feels too heavy, we will remember these early travelers and draw strength from their example and hold firmly to the words of the prophet Isaiah. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And we here who hope in the power of love 
We will soar on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary, and we will walk and not be faint. May it be so.